0: On this episode of Engendered, our guest is Jonathan Custodio, a recent Lehman College graduate, a New Yorker, and a journalist focused on bringing awareness to community issues around racial and cultural identity and disenfranchisement. Jonathan joins us today to talk about the ways in which masculinity and culture and the media have shaped him, his ideas, his behaviors, and his relationships, and how listening to the Engendered podcast has informed the subsequent changes and thoughts about how gender and identity is constructed. Welcome, Jonathan. Hey, how you doing, Terry? You're the second episode in our series on masculinity.
1: I feel honored.
0: Thank you. And as are we to have you. And the reason we invited you is because you are a self-professed listener to the podcast. Thank you for that.
1: Mm -hmm, Definitely.
0: I really want to just get started first with getting to know you a little bit. And this concept of masculinity and how it's informed your life so tell us about you know your background where you grew up and what your family dynamics were
1: I grew up in a Dominican household my parents immigrated from DR in the mid 80s Um, grew up in the Bronx Fordham Road and masculinity like any immigrant home is gonna be a dominant factor Uh, I grew up with two older brothers so the only woman in my house was my mom and she played into the archetype of being a deferential kind of woman. Whenever there was a serious issue in our house, it was always like, "I'm gonna tell your dad," and then I'd stop doing that thing. But it was masculinity was something that I felt all around. When I used to go to school, um, a lot of kids in my middle school would call women by certain disrespectful terms, and even hearing that, by the time you're like 11, 12 years old, even mm-hmm. younger than that. Is already teaching you how to speak to how to speak to women and treat women a certain way, and my dad would always tell me like you have to respect women and you have to like kind of be this chivalrous kind of person, which is I guess ties into a different kind of masculinity, and that changed a lot as as I got older. I wouldn't say I was like a masculine kid or a teenager growing up. You know, I did things where you know, I played basketball and I I was into boxing and I did things that would be maybe seen as categorically masculine. But I was also a bit sensitive to, like I would cry, but I was afraid to show it. And I remember vividly when I was around 10 years old, no, 12 years old, I had a fight in school because I took my basketball, this kid took the basketball away from me, and when I asked for it back, he just punched me in the face. And I was just so shocked by what had happened that I just froze, and then he punched me, like, three more times, and I had, like, a black eye for a while. So I remember that day when I went home, and I was crying uh, in the classroom. I was crying to my mom about it. Uh, she was like, well, fight back. Um, like, you should have hit him. Like, you should have just fought back. Like, she didn't really try to try to make me feel better or cater to that sort of emotion, and oddly enough, that was, like, my second fight. I don't know what happened, but the first fight I had actually did in front of my mom, um, I punched a kid in the face who uh, used a derogatory term to refer to gay people. And even at that young age, I took that so offensively because I was taught, like, that's one of the worst things that you could be associated with as a Dominican kid from the Bronx. Like, you can't be called that, and you can't let that stand. So those were two examples of masculinity that I had growing up. And even just, like, more so in the day-to-day things, those kinds of terms to refer to women and to gay people were just so commonly used that you wouldn't even think twice about it, and you pretty much wouldn't have a choice not to say it. So I said it for a long time when I was younger and I was a teenager, and it didn't take me until like, I started being around other institutions and I started to be around like internship programs, and I went to community college where I kind of started to think a little differently and be more exposed to that.
0: So when you were growing up and you talked about your mom being in this stereotypical gendered role where she was the homemaker and she left the disciplinary role to your dad, did you feel that she had any authority? You know, when she threatened, like, wait till your dad gets home, did you feel like there was, or have any sense that there was any weight to her threat?
1: Up to a certain extent. So... It's like my mom would, you know, she would scold me. She would tell me not to do things like, you know, she'll, like any mother would. But uh, I knew that up to a certain point, like, you're not going to have that same power over me. And once that runs out, what are you going to do? So that's how my dad would step in.
0: And how would your dad, what was your dad and mom's relationship with each other?
1: They wouldn't really... Discuss issues in front of us often. They very keep that close knit, and whenever they're always, they gave the the front of them being a team, and they they were. Whenever one of us told both of them something, uh, told one of them something, you would assume that both of them knew what was going on.
0: Was your dad respectful towards your mom in his behavior?
1: Yes, yes. He was always he was always respectful. You know, he they'd have their arguments, but. It was never anything like, he never raised his hands to her, he never really disrespected her, he never, he never did anything like that.
0: Okay, so, so when you internalized th- that people should be treated kindly, you know, which is why you came to the defense of kids at school, um, and your parents reacted by expecting that you should basically respond to violence with violence, how did you feel about that?
1: I didn't really question it. Um, At the time, I thought that it was right. I had older brothers who kind of pushed the same thing. And I come from a background, a cultural background of very machismo. Like, you have to be tough. Like, you can't let anything stand. Somebody messes with you. Somebody talks whatever to you. You can't let that slide. Um,
0: What happens if you let it slide? What's the risk? Uh...
1: Your, the perception of you takes a hit and people see you differently. They see you as weaker. They see you as not being maybe quote unquote man enough or soft. And if you tend to show any sort of emotional vulnerability, then you're seen as less of a man in a way.
0: What's the outcome of that? Like if, if you just let that be, how would that impact your life? If you just let it slide, let the image persist.
1: I mean, if that image persists, I mean, that'll probably take, like, a real mental toll on you. Um, You're constantly trying to live up to expectations that you can't meet and that don't really embark around, don't really um, center around the person that you want to be. I'm not, like, a pacifist or anything like that, but I often, there are often situations like fights happen just for the dumbest reasons. Um, It's just like a male ego versus a male ego, usually, so... I I never liked that, and even as I got older, people would say, like, nah, you got to do this, you got to do that. Well, listen, I'm right here. If he wants to step to me, that's fine, but I'm not going to exacerbate this problem because for what? A lot of the times we share the same issues just being from the same background. Why am I going to heighten it even further?
0: So you're saying that if you let this fallacy continue, then the risk is that you're going to be bullied, in other words, that your reputation will be sullied.
1: Oh, uh, that's—
0: And and the sullied reputation will lead to bullying, which will have that's the toll it's going to take. Right,
1: it would be repetitive. Uh,
0: If there was no bullying, let's just say in a hypothetical scenario, utopia, would that be okay? Then would you care what people thought at that age? Yeah,
1: you know, if you're if you're a teenager, of course you're going to care what people think. Actually, any age, you're going to care what people think. So, how much weight you put into like what strangers think changes over time, and but that community, that close knit, like. Culture, The kids you see at school every day, people you see at work every day, of course you're going to care what they think, and that's going to have value.
0: Well, I guess what I'm trying to get at is so much of what girls are dealing with in terms of their self-image, their body image in particular, their weight, how that impacts their health, you know, whether they might have body dysmorphia and be susceptible to anorexia or or other kinds of health risks. I I wouldn't say it's a movement, but there's a lot more emphasis on helping girls to reject the way society and culture values their looks and values them, right? And attaches their value to their appearance. And so to the same extent, if boys were to shed the desire to be valued by their peers in the same way which I know is hard because part of going through adolescence is being part of a peer group, having a sense of belonging. Mm-hmm. But if, if we can redefine what belonging means and it's about acceptance, not about fitting into any particular ideal, then wouldn't that be a much healthier scenario?
1: I would, I would say so. Um, when you bring up the, uh, you know, bias-shaming and the overemphasis on young girls appearance um, it reminds me of how and not just my parents but also you know older generations would treat uh, me when I was younger or even I see it in my nephew as well you know so oh you look so strong uh, this and that like you're gonna be really strong when you grow up and uh, associating kind of all these like powerful things but whenever it was like a young girl kind of just be like you look so pretty oh my god look at this skirt that you can't even walk around in so it's like I, it, it reminds me it reminds me of that and acceptance is definitely a, a big part of that and but I, I think that that might put a little too much onus on the kids in terms of like for them to expect to put less weight in what their peers say and I think it's a, a more
0: it's up to the parents to help instill this confidence and sense of worth that they bring into yeah. adolescence. Yeah,
1: I, I, I completely agree with that and but it's it's hard because the parents can only do so much. Like you can still have confidence in the world but once kid goes into that jungle of school and uh whatever other environment he or she is in or they is in uh, it's, it's, it's difficult to manage and if it's an overwhelming culture of still, you know, valuing somebody's appearance or valuing who you are for the wrong reasons, it's going to be, that parent's advice and that parent's teachings is going to d- be drowned out a little bit.
0: Yeah, it reminds me of, you're, you're a fan of The Wire, right? Yeah, it's yeah, my you saw the wire. Show. So I forgot what's the character's name—the kid who was really interested in the computers. With um, I forgot his name, the so the former professor, the former cop who then became a teacher, and he had one of the kids mm-hmm. who who was like really like interested in learning, and he was always staying after school. And then once his housing situation became really unstable, and his best friend Michael, you know, became basically part of the the. Um, the network of right. you know people on the street hustling, he ended up losing that part of his identity, you know, the desire to learn. And right. and, and so I guess maybe out of survival, right? And I just remember that moment where he had asked Mr. Pro Propol- I forgot I, I should, we should Prez, look, Prez Mr. Prez, yeah. Prez Belusky, Belusky. Yeah, he had asked Mr. Prez Beluski for money yeah, I to that. take, you know, like, like, like the GED or something, right? And then he was, and Mr. Prez was like, "If you, if you don't take this, and that's the end of our relationship." And he took it, and he used it to give money to the, you know, guy that was collecting um, materials. Materials, like a, yeah. But
1: it was, it was ultimately for heroin, yeah. And then he goes into that heroin descent, yeah. Um,
0: so it's, it's that that. That in that environment, the pressure was just so strong to conform and also for loyalty. And there, even though he had an option to go, you know, he had Mr. Pre, Mr. Prez, right, gave him like a lifeline and he rejected it.
1: Because the system was just so overwhelming that that one person just wasn't going to be enough. And he's too young to see it at the time. The kid is like 13 in the show. So it's, he can't make that mature, rational decision. He can't think you know, five steps ahead how this is going to help him, which sucks. Um, I love The Wire.
0: Yeah, yeah. And this also reminds me of, I don't know if you heard the episode with Richie Rosita. He was the one who had been in prison and he was teaching feminism in prison and was in gangs when he was young. And that's how he got himself into prison. and, and, And even though he had, in many ways, a very nurturing environment, For, for for that space, it wasn't enough. It wasn't until later, until he he had his own sort of sense of a maturity, right? That that awareness and appreciation came. Yeah,
1: because you're just not you're you're too young to really understand that. It's, I think, um, you know, neurological research says the male brain matures like at twenty five, something like that. So, even at at a uh, older age, like at 20, you might not even see that either. So it's, it's, it's hard. It's very hard. And,
0: yeah. So when you were growing up, what, what, what would you say were the most challenging aspects of negotiating all of the ways in which culture, mm-hmm. your Afro-Latino culture, Dominican culture, the Bronx culture played out in shaping your own self-perception and your behaviors and choices?
1: That's a very multi-layered question.
0: Um, we could take it one at a time. I'll say... How about self-perception? Self, all right.
1: So growing up, um, I grew up in a majority Dominican neighborhood. Um, there are Black Americans, you know, Dominicans and Black Americans and some other, and other groups of Latinos, too. Growing up, I never thought of myself as Afro-Latino because I never was taught to. Um, We were just Dominican; that's what it was. Um, But I knew that there were—I know I looked, you know, darker than most people, and I definitely felt a sense of colorism uh, within our community. Um, I always grew up like you're Dominican, you're black, but you're not both, and so you had to choose. You had to choose. Um, I don't know what it's like for kids growing up now. I hope it's not the same, but I had to choose. And I have friends, you know, I have friends who are black Americans and they'll come to my house. And my mom would call them like black. And in, in like, it sounds not great when you hear it, but Spanish people see it as like endearing. Um, but as I look back on it, like now, it's like I would not want to be called that. So, um, and even like Dominicans and black people growing up, we try to kind of like separate ourselves. And that goes back decades um, because people kind of put us against each other. We're taught to see, nah, we're not like those people. We're better than them. And it reminds me uh, when I did more research about the history between Dominicans and Haitians and how one was trying to appear more white just so that they can be seen as better than the other, Dominicans versus Haitians. And yeah, growing up, that was, that was a real... That was a real problem for me because I, I did kind of have a dual identity in both, and it wasn't until I was around like 19 years old that I kind of started to think differently, and that's really changed. That's really effect, That really affected my self perception when I was a kid, and it's definitely traversed all through all these different kinds of places. It influenced why I wanted to go to Mexico for the Pulitzer Center and. Do research on the Afro-Mexican history and community out there, and all the activism that they're doing. And that was that was a point of pride for me because, you know, it's it wasn't just Afro Dominicans, there's Afro Mexicans, uh, Afro Colombians, there's Afro Ecuadorians, and they face a lot of similar issues in the sense in the sense of like they're not seen as black enough. But what is the black experience?
0: So you, it basically, were very conscious. Maybe not. You didn't have the words to articulate, but you were very conscious of the intersection of class and race while growing up and gender right. um, and, and the, the extent to which gender you talked about influenced you was you were not encouraged or you were actually discouraged by your mother and community to express emotion like when you were crying and to express sensitivity and vulnerability typically feminine traits in other words
1: right right and I, I remember you know crying in the shower because I didn't want to do it in my room because, you know, the water drowns everything out. So, um, yeah, and it was definitely an issue growing up. I'm good with it now. Uh, But there there were moments, you know, to give my family credit where I did cry. And, like, when I got kicked out of school the first time, and I cried in front of them, like, the day before I was supposed to go back to school. um, And they were very supportive of me, and they were there for me. And they allowed myself to be vulnerable in that moment. And there were a couple other moments, too, where they helped. But that was when I was older. And I guess that was for situations that are seen as more serious, quote-unquote. Mm-hmm. But um, for lack of a better word.
0: What happened at age 19 that kind of was this turning point for you? Was that after you had not been able to go back to school? So there was some experience that you had that sort of opened your eyes?
1: It was, it was after. I wouldn't say it was a particular experience, it was kind of just gradual, so after I got kicked out of school, I got into a, a quick depression after that, um, for that whole summer, summer of 2013, and it wasn't until I kind of got back into, you know, the internship program, which is where I met you, and I started having a better sense of self-worth, and then I got a job working in a mailroom, and slowly but surely, I kind of just started to really research a little bit more. I used to live in Brooklyn for a couple of years, and that's when I started to do it. Um, 19 is when I started. When I hit, like, 21 is when I felt more, like, assertive about it. Like, you're not going to tell me how to identify myself. And I just did more more research into myself and talking, meeting other Afro-Dominicans and other Afro-Latinos and having those conversations with them. And I still meet a lot of negativity or, you know, a lack of acceptance and I ran into a friend from middle school the other day where I told him I was black. He's like, "You're not black, bro." And I was like, "I don't feel like explaining this right now." But um, it's that's that's kind of where where it started, and it's it still persists, and I'm always trying to learn more.
0: When you were depressed, what was your attitude towards getting mental health help?
1: Um, there really wasn't a thought about it. I as wasn't even something that I would consider.
0: That was then. That
1: was then. Right, that was and then. has your that attitude was, shifted? Yeah, yeah. yeah, absolutely. I have the utmost respect for people who tap into those services and, like, it should be welcomed and advertised. Um, but at the time, I did not think about that. I kept everything inside. I didn't even want to tell my brothers what I was going through. I, I, I just didn't feel comfortable enough reaching out to that.
0: I mean, I'm sure you know that there's a gender gap in terms of accessing mental health services. Right and a big stigma in general in our country around mental health as being an illness. Whereas I think for, for those of us who are studying issues of race and gender and systemic oppression, and as you say, disenfranchisement, those kinds of experiences, poverty, racism, sexism, on a systemic level, when it becomes a daily thing that you have to manage, it's traumatic, right? And so it's not really considered in illness, for many people, it's it's considered an injury. And so if you're injured, if you fell and, you know, you you've sprained your ankle, that's that's okay, right? Nobody oh, would question scary. you going to the doctor and getting, you know, potentially a cast. Um, and it's also not your fault, right? And so what shifted, what helped you change your attitude towards mental health, if anything? Or was it, again, a, a gradual kind of perspective that you've acquired over the years
1: so I think that um it changed along it changed in conjunction with how I saw emotional vulnerability um so I met I met this person at at LaGuardia uh her name is uh Ambar Castillo and she's a she's a highly sensitive person and that's how she like that was an actual term that I wasn't even aware of at the time And she cries. She'll cry like very frequently. And she kind of taught me, like that crying is not a negative emotion. Crying is something that takes strength, and crying is something that shows vulnerability. Even though our first inclination when somebody cries, like it's gonna be okay, like there's nothing wrong, but that's not how you should meet that. And I think that that's what really kind of made me see things differently. You know, I never met a person like that, and. I kind of started to do more research into it, and it took me a while to kind of like have a better understanding of it, a very long time. But that kind of, in conjunction with, you know, just being around, serving as a peer mentor at LaGuardia Community College, and we're taught, you know, these are the mental health services that you need to relate to students. And kind of just, after a while, a lot of people are coming to you because they kind of respect you as a student, and they respect you're standing on campus and everybody knows you, and they come to you and they're telling you their issues, they're telling you what's going on in their lives, really emotional stuff. So you can't really look at it, like, it's impossible to look at it as a sort of illness at that point. It's just like, this is normal to have a lot of issues to go on in your life, and everyone should have someone that they could talk to about this. Like, it should be normalized for you to go see a therapist. Like, I tell people all the time, and listen, they're like, I'd have to tell them, like, there's nothing wrong with this, like, this is helpful. We all need somebody to talk to multiple people even
0: yeah, and I think also neuroscience you know has shown that when children uh, i don't know if you've heard, you've picked up the term Aces, the concept aces from the podcast, adverse childhood experiences, but so much of i mean I can't imagine that we can go through life and not even have some number of you know some Aces positive score, which is a, um, a list of ten Life events or life, childhood life experiences that could put you at greater health risk as an adult. You know, so they include divorce or having a parent who was substance abuse, um, or in jail, or being a witness to domestic violence, and you know all these different things, right? And even if we don't have that in our sort of nuclear family, we're exposed to it just in society. And so there are. I would imagine, vicarious impacts of having friends with that experience. And it's been shown that from neuroscience that when we have traumatic experiences as children and we don't have the parental or nurturing or you know positive attachment response to help us navigate those traumatic experiences, those shocks to our system that require us to engage in fight, flight, or freeze, it accelerates our development in some ways because we have to sort of quickly grow up, right? But on the other hand, it truncates our ability to build those skills, like social-emotional learning skills, executive functioning skills, and other skills that then later, when we are adults, inhibit us to be able to function in society as well, as effectively, Mm -hmm. right? And so I just feel like all of us probably have some in some ways, some um, impairment as children just by living, especially if we are a person of color, or a woman, like half the population, um, poor, right? Those are all forms of trauma. And 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 so basically, the majority of the population has to navigate that. And we can all benefit, I think, from mental health support.
1: Absolutely. And the earlier, the better, you know. Um, I think that it should be pushed, it should be advertised as heavily as possible. And I think you see that in a lot of different kinds of circles that it is. But, like, you know, you're right, you said, like, there still is relatively a stigma that exists there. And hopefully that stigma can be eradicated in the near future.
0: Yeah. And then, of course, there's a separate question around affordability, right? That's a <laughs> different question we'll address another time. Okay. So, getting back to how gender and race and class the intersection of those impacted your behaviors, did you find yourself growing up and then over time being vulnerable to resolving conflict through force?
1: By force? Like like
0: through violence or through intimidation or through domination? How were you able to resist?
1: I mean, that just I I don't think that was that was rarely ever my style to begin with. Um, I I was never that kind of a, of an aggressive kind of person. I think that my aggressiveness would my aggressiveness would come out when I was met with that kind of exercise to try to dominate or to try to like control somebody or you know violence or like that. That's when I would get a little aggressive and push back. Um, I got that a lot from growing up with my brothers. Uh, so I, you know, we would grow up, we would fight and we would do stuff like that and. You know, it happens, and, but that, that helps you out when, you, when somebody who was a stranger and was more of a danger to you is going to try to do that too. But as I got older, um, I was not one to even try to resolve conflict that much to begin with. In my, when I was say like 19, 20, 21 years old, you know, I tried to sort of like be that, be that bridge whenever I saw an issue amongst other people. But conflict, like as far as myself went, I guess I just never really sought it out, period. You know, I always try to be cool with everybody. Like, Listen, we all share a common interest on some level. We can meet on that and it's okay. But you, you do still have to meet up with conflict. And I think growing up um, in the Bronx, I remember um, when I went to LaGuardia, people were trying to talk to me about microaggressions. And I'd never really heard of that term until I got to school because that wasn't something that I ever remembered experiencing much as a kid. It wasn't really microaggressions. It was just aggressions. So if somebody had a problem with you, chances are you knew about it mm-hmm. and they were going to confront you with it. So... I guess I was taught from an early age through without much of a choice to learn how to deal with, with confrontation. But I started to see microaggressions when I got a lot, a lot older. And
0: so microaggressions is, I would say, different from confrontations in the sense that it's oppressive. It's not confrontational, right? You may, you may not know that it's confrontational because it's it's happening on such a low-level harm and such a frequency right, right. that you just have to kind of, to get through the day, you just have to let it go. Like that shove on the subway. You know, when you're holding and somebody pushing you aside without saying excuse me and or whatever, expecting you to step aside when you're on the street, that kind of thing, or whatever it is, you know, when you're waiting in line, like those right. little things that you just let go.
1: But I found that the microaggressions can incite confrontation. And oftentimes we'll, we'll regret that we didn't take those moments to tell that person like, listen, this was wrong, what you said. And normally, you know, there's like a power dynamic involved in that. And yeah, it's, it's very difficult to manage. And I, I wasn't really familiar with microaggressions or at least I didn't, I wasn't aware of it when I was a kid. Like I didn't, I didn't see it as such. But when I got to LaGuardia Community College and, and onward, I saw it a lot more, and I would just... Sometimes I would laugh that this person would try to hurt me in, like, a very minuscule kind of way. And other times, I would call that out, or when I would notice that would happen to some of my friends, I'm like, that's not cool.
0: What about with your relationships? Like, your, your friendships and your romantic relationships, how has gender played a role in shaping those relationships, if at all?
1: Um, okay, so I... I had a very sort of, like, genderfied view of romantic relationships. Like, a guy is supposed to be the one who is reaching out to women, who is making the first move, who gets flowers. That, that was something that was instilled in me since I was, like, in middle school. But I was always, I was a shy kid in a way. And I didn't even go to my middle school prom. I didn't go to my high school prom because I was afraid. But as I got a little older, um, I got more confident in myself. and. I started making those kinds of first moves, but I noticed that like in terms of how i how I looked at it, I felt like if I didn't do anything, nothing was gonna happen because I wouldn't give women those opportunities, and people started to see because I was so aggressive, not like physically aggressive, but like if I felt that there was a connection there, I was gonna go for it because what do you have to lose? That's how I saw it um because I was like that, I tend to get a perception of like, oh, you know, you just want to talk to every girl you see you like everybody like this and that and I didn't like that. Like, I, I wanted women, uh, after talking to, like, you know, female friends that I had, I wanted women to see me as, as safe, as friendly, as, like, there are so many guys out there. There are so many women out there who feel like every guy that talks to them on the random or like a stranger is just you know wants to sleep with them or wants their phone number whatever that is so I started to be more cognizant of that and I didn't want to be seen in that light and I wanted more women to be able to talk to have those friendly stranger conversations because those are great I love those so I started to back off a lot and I started to just like keep it on a very platonic and just friendship level like just trying to get to the homeless people and keeping it as that and always being cognizant of those boundaries because I didn't want to I didn't want to come across that way and I didn't want to make, contribute to making somebody feel uh, uncomfortable, you know? So that's helped me out a lot. I definitely.
0: So you're saying that's helped you develop intimacy first and trust that's led to then a romantic relationship?
1: That's either led to a, rom- a romantic relationship or has led to good friendships. Okay. Um, and like, I actually have a lot of. This sound, I don't, I'm not gonna say This sounds weird I was gonna say I have a lot of Female friends But that sounds weird um, What I mean to say Is like I have Most of my friends Are actually women And that ties into Like men are not Taught to be vulnerable We're not really Taught to share Our emotions We're supposed to Just go with the flow And just like Have a beer And watch sports And just talk About stupid stuff and I, I kind of got tired of that. I didn't want that. I liked having those really long conversations where we talked about like our feelings, or our dreams or stuff we wanted to do or like depressions that we went through or, you know, our experiences in this life and stuff that we've struggled with. Like, I love those. And because of how we're socialized, that tended to happen more with women.
0: So do you believe that there's this, uh, th- like, I mean, this is, there are waves of this on social media, especially Twitter, where you see guys complaining about female friendships, right? Like how they have a female friend mm-hmm. and the friend expects them to be, you know, like a friend, except not hitting on them, right? Oh, yeah, and yeah. and they're like complaining because that's what a friendship is. And the women's response is, that's what a friendship is. And aren't you capable of having a friendship with a woman as a guy?
1: Wait a minute, so the men are complaining that the women...
0: Just want a friendship. Okay. Even though, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, um, that's, I, I don't empathize with those men. Um, it's not that hard to just keep your, your impulses to yourself.
0: So you believe, obviously you believe that heterosexual men and women can be friends and not have any expectation or, or ulterior motive.
1: Of course, and I think that any kind of diversity in friendship is gonna enhance the way you see the world and the quality of friends that you have um i remember i, I did at one point doubt that myself um and i remember asking my older brother he's been friends uh he's a heterosexual man this is heterosexual woman they've been friends for like 15 years and i asked him like you never ever thought about like that in a different way he said no like it's just you have that sort of bond and that trust with somebody and that was just the the icing on the cake for me, um, but I, I definitely had doubts. But I think that's that's the perspective that you're taught that you know you're around if you're around guys all the time, and the women you know are around women all the time, then it's only gonna keep getting uh, you know reestablished. The
0: stereotypes will be reinforced.
1: <laughs> reinforced, yeah. That's what I was looking for.
0: Let's talk about the podcast. What are some of the episodes that you remember? that you felt maybe light bulb moments for you Uh, hopefully i'm assuming that there are
1: (laughs) (laughs) uh there there are a few there are a few i had to go back and look at the episode list to jog my memory a little bit i think there was one earlier this year about it was a chinese feminist
0: oh lita Hong fincher
1: yes 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 that was her name um good thing (laughs) i was gonna have trouble but um One of the first things she said was, you know, don't look at Chinese feminists with this, like, American framework, because we tend to, like, make sure the world revolves around us. And I was like, yeah, I'm glad that she started off that way and kind of centered a conversation on it. But what I like, my favorite episodes of the podcast have centered around international feminists, because I think that's something that doesn't really get talked about that much in the United States. And even the feminists that do get a lot of attention tend to be white women. So it's even better when you have like a Chinese feminist like Leda Hong Fincher talking about uh, what's going on in China. And I think she said like there's a 30 million gap and like 30 million more men than there are women because of the one-child policy that they had and the forced abortions. And like that's something that we're going around in our day-to-day lives. We're focused on what's going on very close to us like in our communities and that's fair you should you know you should that matters but it's important to sort of get a sense and allow to yourself to expand the picture um when you learn about what's going on in other countries and maybe and tie it back into yourself i also liked there's another episode the recent one uh there are two recent ones the one you had with tate walker and the other one with um an Indian feminist that was Oh,
0: Vishwa, Premi.
1: Yes, yes. That was, it reminded me of, I had a friend who got a Fulbright and went to India, and she studied women's rights over there. And it kind of correlated with some of the stuff that she would tell me. And the podcast itself was interesting to me because most, I noticed that most podcasts, when they have translating, it's, it's hard. Um, It's a very hard thing to do. And most of the time they try to like, you know, you'll hear the person's voice in like the first like five seconds, and then after that, the translator will take over so you can understand, but you didn't do that. You just let the person speak, then the translator came over, and even though that takes longer, it kind of allows you to... Get a better sense of who the person, like, what the ideas they're trying to come across, like, what they sound like, what the tone is, like, the passion. You can still kind of hear that in somebody's voice. So even though I had a little bit of trouble understanding everything that was going on, but that's also because I always have trouble understanding stuff that was going on, but um, I did like that about it in terms of how you went, up, how you approached it. And with Tante Walker, I had no idea what a two-spirit feminist was. I was... I, I really didn't, like... When I first saw the description, I, I started thinking about it. I was like, I don't believe in spirits to begin with. So I don't like, I thought we all just had one spirit um, for those who do believe in it. But I, I believe um, she likened it to being a, a queer indigenous feminist. And I didn't, you know, think about how in her own community she struggles on both sides of it. You know, we don't really hear about indigenous people's rights that much to begin with. So I thought that was a very interesting issue that she brought up, and I was completely unaware of that. So that was a pretty cool.
0: I mean, I think that I'm glad that you brought up these international episodes or issues that were discussed by these guests, because I think one of the goals that I have is trying to, you know, one of the, the hashtags I have is connect the dots. And usually the connect the dots hashtag I use when I'm talking about issues in domestic violence and how it's being reported in the media by journalists, right? There's a tendency by journalists, especially around issues of violence against women, to be victim blaming. Acts of domestic violence are the only crime where the word accuser is used. And already you're put in a position where you're almost like at fault and that you're at fault for having to accuse someone, even though you were the victim and there's you know a lot of shifting of active verbs to passive so that the perpetrator is not centered as the actor in the story it's the victim as being the person who should be looked at with suspect mm-hmm. and so the idea is that these issues these patterns these gendered patterns these racial patterns caste class power privilege they exist everywhere and this tactics are the same everywhere. And so if we don't recognize that they're the same everywhere, then how can we address it as a society? How can we tackle it as a problem? And if we do recognize it in certain spaces, like we're very quick as Americans to say, oh, that country is authoritarian in that way. And like China with Leda Hong Fincher, all of those tactics that she described, that the Chinese feminists had experienced, those were all coercive control s- tactics on a state level. But they also are the same tactics that happen in a family, in a home, between two people in an interpersonal relationship. And so it's so easy for us to recognize it on a sort of higher plane, but not in our own lives. And, and if we don't do that, if we don't make those connections, then how do we take action in our lives, right, and have agency?
1: I mean. I want, how, how would you recommend somebody to a sort of make that connection? Like,
0: I mean, well, I have to say, part of why I have those episodes is because it's more intellectual in a way, so it's more accessible. I find that if you're a recent or still struggling with healing as a survivor of gender-based violence, you may be more easily triggered by the survivor stories. And, and even if you're not a survivor... It may be just triggering because every day we are under assault from our news. And so as I've said in the past and as I've written on my blog, we are all in an abusive relationship. We all know now what it feels like to be in an abusive relationship and look how hard it is to get away (laughs) because the system keeps us from doing it. Right? Like, look at the Nancy Pelosi and what's happening with the impeachment. She has to manage an unfair rigged system to try to get accountability. And so if if people just with zero ACE scores, ACEs scores... Mm-hmm don't want to listen to survivor stories, then how do we get them to care? How do we get them to learn about these tactics and translate them? Because it's the same whether it's in your workplace or in your home or in the politics. And once we see the power dynamics and deconstruct it from that sort of ideological political framework, then we can do something about it. Um, Because I hate when people say, criticism of what's happening now in the GOP. It's political. It's not partisan at all. It's about holding power to account, holding abusive power to account. And if we don't do it at that high level, then what can any of us expect? How can we expect that child sexual abuse survivors are going to get any kind of accountability through the Catholic Church or through the Boy Scouts or through Larry Nassar and, you know, U.S. Gymnastics, then none of us have any hope if we can't expect at the highest level that there's going to be accountability.
1: Right. I think, you know, I touched on the how to make people with zero ACES scores kind of, you know, uh, be more understanding or care more. That's very, it's, it's it's a very difficult task because people tend only to get invested in something when it affects them directly and when it really, like, hits home for them. But, but another way is sort of, like, another issue, rather, is that it puts the onus on those victims to do even more. Like, not only do they have to tell their stories, but they have to make you care about telling those stories. Like, and it's, it's not fair. So, I mean, I, I have friends who are just, like, they're critical of the Me Too movement. And whenever they hear another recent story coming up, it's like, without even knowing all the details, oh, here comes another woman just trying to extort money from a guy. And I'm just like, I try to make it seem like, how does this affect you? Like, how is this really hurting your life that this person is trying to do something that's courageous? Like, is it? It's not. You know, it's just like, so why don't you just accept it, listen to what they have to say, and don't be against them. You know, like, try to...
0: Yeah, I mean, if someone is actually making the system more accountable to one person, than they're making the system more accountable to everybody when they're being taken advantage of or oppressed or exploited in some way. Mm-hmm. And so it's a service to all of us. So I want to ask you as a journalist, obviously you've had this personal journey of your own in terms of growing and, and being more open and shifting your mindset. How has that informed your journalism you know, either the pieces that you're interested in writing about or your perspective or your approach to writing a story
1: so i mean as as a journalist there's a big responsibility that goes there and i have to constantly be conscious of how i feature people in a story how i make them come off does this tie into sort of any stereotypes or any big picture kind of ideas that doesn't really represent who this person is or what the story is about. Um, when I went to Mexico, um, I came across certain parts of the story that I left out intentionally because I, I knew if I put them in there, it was going to give the characters a different representation from people who read them that doesn't, all, doesn't at all summarize the kind of people that they are. And I got that because, you know, i'm i am afro latino these people are afro mexican so we have that connection that somebody who hasn't even gone to Latin America or has gone to mexico at all or any anything similar wouldn't really get from that they can't connect in that way um but at the same time, if I'm covering you know something that's has a specific focus on women and every story has a focus on women but I'm coming at a point of privilege, too. Like, I'm not going to know certain things. I'm not going to understand. So it's my responsibility to reach out to people who will, people such as yourself or whoever I'm working with on that particular story, so that way I don't really come off as, the story doesn't come off as ignorant or insensitive and that it has the best representation for the people involved.
0: So this was something that I had discussed actually with Leda Hong Fincher, because in her book, you know, she started off as a journalist, but towards the end when she talked about her own experience being a sexual assault survivor and then her friendship, her budding and, and now deepening friendship with these people that she was reporting on, these feminist activists, right? Like what's, what's the line between journalism and advocacy? Can you do journalism if you're also engaging in advocacy?
1: Most people get into journalism because they want to advocate for something. Like, there's no there's no really line there. It's it's all intertwined into some way, shape, or form. I mean, if you want to be that person who you want to hold power into account, that's a reason you get into journalism. You want to advocate for people who are disenfranchised. If you want to be a person who, you know, you want to cover the communities that you grew up with, that's advocating for those communities. I mean,
0: you're giving them light and hopefully the opportunity to attract resources whether it's you know eyeballs or money or attention in some other way
1: yeah and and not even just that it's it's just like it's personal for you like that's everybody i know who's gotten into journalism has done it for a personal reason like something that they care about something that they're passionate about they see the way some group of people are covered and they're like i can do it better and that's what gravitates them towards that so you can be uh A supporter of something, you can be an advocate for something and still get it right, and still tell the truth, and still get the facts straight. Like it's not separated. Mm
0: -hmm. You probably know that at the end of every conversation, we ask every guest a series of questions that I've adapted from inside the Actors Studio. It's called the Engendered Questionnaire. First question: What is at stake in the struggle to end gender-based violence and oppression?
1: How many people have said everything? Not enough. Um, listen, uh, everything, uh, gender based violence, gender based oppression affects us all in different kinds of shapes and forms. And it's something that we all need to be more presently aware of and take into account. Like,
0: what gives you hope?
1: Younger generations, millennials, people who are passionate, people who like, they're just, they're not going to accept the ineptitude or the lack of acceptance or the intolerance of people who are in power. And they're going to do in their mind what is best to improve this country and to improve the world or whatever communities that they're a part of. And that's something that's always to be admired. And as long as we can all work together and work across the aisles and come together to form an, an understanding that's going to help everybody, then I think that's something to be hopeful of.
0: Final question. What can we do more of, less of, start or stop to end gender-based violence and oppression?
1: We can listen more, we can be more empathetic, and we can try our best to understand while also understanding that we'll never be able to fully understand and that that's okay. The goal is, you know, if you're trying, if you're making that effort and if you're trying to be aware, that means something to those people. Like it may not, you may not get it right, it may take time, but sometimes it's just a practice of just being present and being available and being there.
0: Thank you, Jonathan.
1: Thank you, Terry. I'm glad you had me here.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It Q&A, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join Can Do it Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions.